22, 17. You know, hey, hey, you know I don't count that high, all right? That wasn't on the infantry test. So, all right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. And Doc likes to count out of order because, you know, that's science <laughs> or something. Um, so without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest, Ms. Jody Lynn Nye. So can you please introduce yourself to people who might not have heard of you? Hi, I'm Jody Lynn Nye. I write science fiction and fantasy novels and short stories. I have been a book reviewer and I have taught science fiction. I teach the two-day writer's workshop at Dragon Con every year that's in Atlanta on Labor Day weekend. I'm one of the uh, writer judges for the Writers of the Future contest. That's the largest speculative fiction contest in the world. And I have had a, a many and varied career with some extremely lucky breaks. <laughs> All right. So the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. So I actually found Jody through Seska. We were planning an episode talking about the importance of book reviews. And as uh, Jody mentioned, she used to be a professional book reviewer. So we were trying to make that happen. That episode didn't pan out for scheduling reasons because, you know, people in their day jobs. Uh, it's still been prepped and we will still host that someday. But um, that was how we first got introduced to her. But Doc, I imagine that was not how you first met Jody. So can you tell us that story? It was not actually. So I, I the first time I came across her was as an author. But then when I met Jody, the person, I was at Dragon Con doing dinner with a friend who I and Jody came up, joined us for dinner, and I got introduced. And I did not realize it was Jody Lanai, which is probably for the best because otherwise I would have flipped out because I have loved her work forever. And um, I just, and she's does some amazing stories. She does some of the best humor I've ever read. So I would have flipped out and completely not have eaten my dinner and had a fangasm and meltdown. So in fact, it was very funny because the person afterwards, I went, you know, it would be really cool. I heard Jody Lynn is going to be at this convention to meet her. And he goes, you just had dinner with her. And I went, you didn't tell me that. You told me this is, yes, I did. I went, no, you said this is Jody, not this is the Jody. So, and in so, perspective, that was the first night I'd ever been at, drag, at, at a convention. I'd been at a Dragon Con for less than five hours. <laughs> so, writing humor is one thing, writing it well is a completely different thing. I've written one and exactly one humor story, and I said, no, thank you, never again. So, anybody yeah. that can do it on a reoccurring basis, I have much respect for. That's because you don't have a sense of humor. You just have a warped thing the army put in, in in its place. I actually was submitting it to an anthology of humor, and I sent it the first 2,000 words to the publisher, and I'm like, is this army humor a little too much? And he goes, yeah, we might have to make this one a little bit higher rated for this kind of... So I, I ended up publishing it myself after I, I got a co-writer help me tone down the barracks humor. But when you're trying to make everything have multiple meanings, that's just a lot of thinking. So... Do you do that when you write humor? Do you try to make things like have layered meanings or do you just go with a slapstick on the top? Oh, I do not just go with slapstick. Slapstick is one of the <laughs> facets of humor, but it's by no means the only one and certainly not the only one I use. Sometimes uh, sometimes I bury jokes in my work that some people have never ever mentioned, but I'm, I'm happy that they're there. But for the most <laughs> okay. part, I... I 
it's layers, it's different kinds, it's different facets, and some things like uh, Humpty Dumpty uh, paying his words to mean what he wants them to, some uh, jokes do double duty. See, that's where it gets hard because you have to think too much, and I don't like thinking anymore. If I wanted to think, <laughs> I would have joined the infantry. <laughs> I know you're waiting for that, Doc. But all right, ask her the religion questions, and we get to see if she gets to stay. She'll get to stay because you're. she's right, you're wrong. So, oh crap, I gave you the ability to kick me out of the show now, too. I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, uh, for our sci fi movie selection tonight, we have Galaxy Quest, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or Spaceballs. What's the question? Did I freeze? You have to pick the religion. Which one oh, do you want I more? see. Wow. Well, I have a soft spot for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but I think that Galaxy Quest was nearly perfect, so it has to be Galaxy Quest. It's definitely withstood the test of time and graphics, even. Um, so now for our uh, fantasy religion question of pick the movie, Last Action Hero, Bewitched, or Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past? I've never even heard of the last one. JR must have clearly picked it. Well, if Google for the win. With, if you're going to go with Bewitched, the uh, sitcom of the 1960s, I would have to say that. But that we count. What? You can say the 1960s Bewitched. That will work. Okay. I left that open to which Bewitched you watched because people came at it at different times. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were listening and not watching, she just did the patented no shake. I so, cannot do that. I thought that my head would fall Discovery off. was a terrific uh, character. And her did mother, she, <laughs> amazing. Did she actually do the nose shake or was that like uh, CGI of the era? That's what I did, need to know. No, she happen? did that. She did that. I can't make my nose move that way. It might fall off. So that's impressive. Oh. Okay. All right. Moving on, Doc. Save me from my. Okay. So which was your first love, though? Sci fi or fantasy? Oh, where do comic books fall into that? <laughs> it depends on the content. Are there sci-fi comic books and then there's fantasy comic books? I suppose it, it has to have been fantasy then because superheroes are fantasy, um, whatever you may say. And I started reading comic books at a very early age. My grandfather bought me my first gold key comics when I was four, and that started a lifelong love. I kept on buying them many years into... Uh, my upper childhood until I really couldn't afford them anymore. When, you know, when they jumped to 35 cents, that was already a problem. And then yeah. when they went to dollars, uh, well, you know, my poor, poor starving student person uh, couldn't keep up my habit. Well, and comic books for me are kind of like mangas. You just devour them so fast. Yes. Yep. So, and um, I mean, $7 for, a 350 page book is great because it keeps me busy for at least a couple days. Mm -hmm. I don't don't read as fast as my mother. It would keep her busy for a day. But um so what is well you kind of told us, but I don't I've never heard of the gold key comics because normally we ask what you first what was your first memory of speculative fiction? But what I don't it know. almost has to be that. Uh, although I was reading gold golden 
books, little golden books, when I was okay. a small child. And my favorite, according to my mother, was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I could recite back to her at about a year old. So oh, it has wow. fantasy dating all the way back. <laughs> and uh, gold key comics were things like Donald Duck and Mickey okay. Mouse. So they they were extremely innocent. They were they're very, very suitable for small children. And my grandfather was giving me those in front of uh, my mother, along with things like classic comics. I read Ivanhoe as a comic book long before I knew that it was a huge book by Sir Walter Scott. Nice. And then gradually got into superheroes, DC and Marvel and, uh, and all of those things. They were there waiting for me. It's Wonderful. kind of an appropriate answer given the month that it is. Uh, Tis the season and all. Although we were talking about that uh, with my oldest today, or this weekend, and he's decided that Santa is actually an extortion racket against parents and that Santa is a mafiosa. So somebody needs to write that story because I'd probably read it. It sounds hilarious. <laughs> but, all right. right. Bad Santa. That's what I told like him to write it. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, you that... need to. Don't let Michael read it. <laughs> no. He'll get ideas. <laughs> All right. So what is it you love about the, the umbrella of speculative fiction? Not being here in this time, at the, in this place, when I was a kid. They, they, years ago, I was at an American Booksellers Association conference, and Lois Bujold was making a talk uh, for, for the librarians assembled. And she was quoting a study that she had read about type A and type B readers, Type A readers read stories about things that could happen to people like them uh, taking place in the here and the now with uh, the same sort of problems that could befall people like themselves. And type B re readers read anything but. And as a matter of fact, type B readers read six to eight times as many books as type A readers anyhow. Probably because they're having more fun. Well, um, it it's, it's things that don't, wouldn't necessarily happen to you, but you could wish that they were. There were a lot of wish fulfillment books. And I am a type B reader. Is there a type so, C that'll read both? I'm sorry? Is there like a type C that'll read both or a type D and I'll throw in like the nonfiction? Oh, I I, I am talking about fiction only here. You can okay, read okay. as much nonfiction as you want. But okay. type A readers tend to read stories about people like themselves and things that could befall them. Okay. I am All not right, that so, kind of reader. I don't want to I'm read a book like me. <laughs> that but you're right. Very I tend to, yeah, that's that's not as exciting. But I, I am also the boring guy that would pay for JSTORs just to read the stuff myself. So, all right. So, how did your love of science? Don't look at me like that, Doc. I can see you judging me. They're judgy eyes. So, how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you writing stories in that space? Oh, I've been writing stories since I could write. I was telling stories before I could write. So that was that was not actually a transition. That was just a continuation of my life. I would tell stories to my brothers, to my cousins. And uh, when I went away to, to sleepaway camp, I would tell stories at night because we didn't have a television. And I would tell stories in the dark after they turned out the lights. So I was kind of the entertainment for my cabin. And uh, that, that just continued on. I, I, when I could write, I started making my own little books out of my dad's office paper. I was also my own publisher and illustrator. So <laughs> please God, let none of these still, things still exist. I, I would be I would be so shattered if if any of these turned up. But I was proud of them at the time. 
All right. So many authors let their own real life experiences influence the sort of stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shape you as a storyteller? No, I, I just started imagining things. Uh, I think my best friend and I used to, to make believe together. Uh, we, we picked out things that we wanted to have happen and, and just sort of imagined them into being. And some of them were gloriously tragic and some of them were just total wish fulfillment. So I suppose so the, in a way that was as close as I come to that. So the bridge to Terabithia could have been written about you as a young child, minus the dying. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe. Have you, have you not read that book? I have read it. And, okay. and not, a, not a favorite. I think it's good. Doc. What? I, I kind of preferred the portal fiction of the Chronicles of Narnia, to be honest. Okay, okay, that's an acceptable answer. You were wounding my soul, but but Doc, you're gonna you're gonna keep this going. Okay, so fandom questions. Um, have you had any cool art or somebody cosplay one of your characters yet? Why, yes. As a matter of fact, your very own youngest brother of uh, cosplayed one of my wonderful characters, yes. and he did a great job of it. James was a fantastic Lord Thomas Canago. I thought it was awesome and he threw in little little bits and pieces of his own so i was oh, very very honored it very much blended into the character i i think they're two peas in a pod <laughs> <laughs> no he was tremendous i've also had uh, a group in chicago who cosplayed the myth adventures characters and fellow including one fellow who painted himself green to play oz oh my and goodness that, that was great they they were terrific i'm still in touch with those people they're really nice that's awesome. It's That's wonderful. It okay. is a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> you did break me. Okay. As somebody asked for your autograph out in public, away from a convention, maybe a book signing or oh, yeah. library. Uh, bookstores, uh, libraries, that kind of thing. Um, when I talk at schools, sometimes I'm, I'm always very flattered. Uh, because I, I, I have to say, I never expect anyone to know who I am. <laughs> so I don't, so I don't look quick. like the words on a page. <laughs> so you mentioned talking at school. So is that something you do a lot of like go to school libraries? We're talking like colleges. I will, I will do it. I will do it. The libraries uh, that, that were in Northern Illinois, where I, where I come from uh, frequently had events where they would invite a local author or uh, they would get in touch and say, are you close enough to come to this event? And I'd say, sure, I'm, I'm happy, happy to come to that if there's a book fair or something. Because I find that if you talk to people, uh, you get, they get a chance to get to know you a little bit. They're, they're more interested in reading your work. But anything that I can do to get people actually reading books, I will, I will happily do. Okay. Well, all reading's amazing. So, and, um, and you're, you're always so sweet with kids and fans when they come up. So, um, if you are not nice to your fans, you do not do, deserve to have any. I, I have said that about people before too. I got told I was mean when I said it, but I don't have fans. So it's maybe that's why. I don't know. Well, I have, I have watched, uh, some fellow pros who shall remain extremely nameless be very rude to to their fans, and I don't get it. Uh, you you can sometimes catch people on a on a, in a bad moment, 
Well, of course, yeah, yeah. but if all things being equal, if, if you are not busy, if you are just sitting at a table or if you are just passing through, it, it takes nothing to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't, instead of get out of my way. Yeah, that would be not a great way of saying it. But um, on to the positive. Yes. Have you spotted someone reading your book out in the wild? I have. I have. I was I was just, you know, trembling. Should I say something? Should I not say something? I didn't say something. <laughs> but it was, I, I, it was a nice moment. That's got to be really fun, though, to see. Oh, it is. It's great. And then um, what is your weirdest or funniest fan interaction that you'd like to share with us? Oh, boy. Well, you you took the you took the one of the ones uh, since since it actually happened to you. Uh, I was I one of the times I was at Dragon Con and I was in the Walk of Fame. I was I was talking to a celebrity that that I liked, and very very nice man. And and all of the celebrities who come to Dragon Con are assigned a minder, somebody to go you know uh, get food for them or get drinks for them to, to uh, get the correct spelling of somebody's name for the photographs that they're selling and so on. And while I was talking to this nice gentleman, his minder said to me, oh, I love your work. And next to, uh, next to him was, uh, was another celebrity. And he said, oh, what does she write? And I got passed down the line. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and uh, I chatted with him for a little bit, and he turned to his minder and said, "Give her, give her a signed photograph." And I had a, I had an extra book on me, so I gave it to him. That oh, was fun. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, that was that was very cool. So for those most of our audience, we we target readers, not other authors. There's plenty of how to be an author podcast. But if you are aspiring to be an author, let that show you. Keep a, a book on you of yours because you never know when you want to trade with famous people who want a copy. <laughs> Absolutely. So I hope he enjoyed it. Outstanding. So Doc, do you want to tell the story where uh, where you met her? You want to you want to squeeze out one more time? Hmm? So do I you want to tell you. the story? So did you want to tell us how, how you met her so you could squeeze out one more time? Or are you good? I'm good. Jared's okay. liking so, doing this because I don't do this do that very often. So So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where we talk about everything Miss Jody Lindai has written, which I realize it's a long list, Jody. So could you give us like the reader's digest version of your body of work? And I have linked to your Wikipedia, which has your bibliography. So if you're really curious, people, you can go check it out. Well, the, the Reader's Digest version of, I started out in writing game materials for Mayfair Games. I was writing modules for them. And from there I transitioned into writing Choose Your Own Adventures for tour books that were in a licensed series called Crossroads, in which the uh, organizer who was at the time my fiance and is now my husband, Bill Fawcett, <laughs> licensed known science fiction and fantasy works such as The Wizard in Spite of Himself, Xanth, uh, the Dragon Dragon Riders of Pern, uh, Roger Zelazny's uh, Trumps, and so on. And I wrote four Choose Your Own Adventures for the Crossroads series. From there, I also did a couple of guides uh, to fantasy and science fiction worlds, namely Pern and Xanth. And at the same time, I was selling my first 
uh, novels to Warner Books. And my first fantasy and my first science fiction, which happened to be a collaboration with Anne McCaffrey, came out the same month. Technically, you know, <laughs> two adjacent months, but it so happened that they really actually hit the bookstore at the same time. Uh, since then, I have written a total of around 55 books. I've, I've published a total of, of around that many books. Uh, three of them are anthologies or actually collection. No, one of them's a collection, two of them are anthologies. And some fantasy series, some science fiction series, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've written a ton of short stories, about 175 at this point. I, um, I stopped counting at 50 people when I was going through the list. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them out there. And I, I really love writing short stories. Many of my novelist friends do not like writing short stories. They, they consider them a waste of time. But I really enjoy it. And I like having something that I can actually finish because books take a few months. So uh, I, I enjoy fun. short content, too. So it's always nice to find people who appreciate that. So I, I do have a question. So you did mention that you wrote the Choose Your Own Adventure or whatever. Right. Comment path. So. I've looked at those as, you know, because I read those as a kid and I loved them. And now I look at them and I think about how I would write them. And even with a modern word processor, like I'm picturing scenes with like a serial killer, like you've got the strings everywhere, trying to figure out how to make everything connect. So how crazy did it drive you trying to organize that when you were Not writing that? Not at all. Not at all. You see, you don't <laughs> write it all scrambled up. You write it as okay. a story. And then at the turning points, you write the... Uh, conclusions, the the absolute fail, the uh, if if this, then that, and the success keep going uh, answers. Sometimes there can be two to five different uh, branches off a main uh, thread. One of them will always lead to failure. And for that, the Crossroads series had section 29, the, the absolute failure, the, the character loses and goes home or, the, or dies tragically or something like that. And it was always section 29 throughout all 14 of the books in the series. That's awesome. I remember that with that. Uh, the, the first time I got the Crossroads book, I didn't understand it was a choose your own adventure book. And I read it straight through. Oh. And then I remember, yeah, it was a very confusing moment uh, or moments, but I remember actually getting out a pad of paper. So I worked out all the permutations because and read them all of the permutations. Many and people that that. You're a Many super nerd. Leave me. Uh, it's okay, JR. I'm okay with being a super nerd. Well, I, I wrote I wrote it in order and then I mixed it up. Uh, I, I have a chart. <laughs> With, with each one and I put both of the, the numbers in the little bubble designating which, which section that is. I was, I had to explain it to Anne McCaffrey when I wrote the first one that is set in Pern, which was called Dragon Harper. Yes. And I told her exactly what I was doing, but she didn't, she didn't quite understand it. So I wrote her an eight page, choose your own adventure, which shall go down in history because it was called Robinson Hits the Sauce, where her favorite character, <laughs> Master Robinson, uh, goes to a, a gather at, at Benton, Benton uh, Hold and parties a little too hard. And the, the, uh, 
the failure is when when he pretty much has to sleep it off at, at Benden Weir because he can't get a dragon to take him back to to Harper Hall. <laughs> Nice. So I didn't realize the thing still existed. Uh, after Anne passed away, Todd went through her things and he found it and he gave it back to me. Oh, so wow. I, I what was her reaction? I wrote it. What? What was her reaction when she realized what you were doing, when she understood the concept of choosing? Oh, religion? she loved it. She thought it was great fun. Anne had a great mind. She she understood what I was, what I was doing. I left her stuff... Uh, I explained to her exactly where she needed to go to get the success story and what it looked like with the failure and how many permutations of the story that it could go through. And she liked the idea because it had it had limited playability because once you've gone through all the combinations, well, you know, you, you read it again if you like it, but but you know where to go after that. <laughs> right. Okay. So all right. Well, all of that sounds fascinating. Today, we're here to talk about the strong arm tactics, which is book one of the Wolfpack series. So mm -hmm. where did you come up with the premise for this series? Was it psychedelics, the Ouija board, overindulging <laughs> in Georgia peaches? So, so how did you get the idea for the publisher asked me to. The publisher asked me to. I wrote it for Misha Merlin, for Steve Pagel, who was the publisher then. And we were discussing things that I could do for him. He was uh, bringing in some of the books that I had written that no longer had a home because the editor uh, left the publishing house. And when the contract expired, I, I withdrew the rights. Mm -hmm. So we were talking and I said, what don't you have that you would like? And he said, well, I don't have any military stuff. And I said, how would you feel about a humorous military series? And he said, great. <laughs> so I, I let him have that. I love this book. So is it a standalone or is there did the rest of the series make it? It was always meant to be a series, but uh, Misha Merlin went under and I it, ha it sat idle for a few years and then Wordfire Press picked it up and I've been in negotiation to do more. Uh, I had three others plotted out. So okay. uh, working working on getting that done. I'd, re I'd really like to go on with it because it was fun. It, it, That's it, always a good sign. It very much was fun, and I loved it. And there was actually a character, a soldier I knew in the army who reminded me of the character. Of which I'm a thing or a bad thing, Doc? Uh, um. So, it, well, uh, we'll get into some of what reminded me. I I knew a soldier who he was the only member of in his family who did not go into the mafia. So I've met a few of those. All right. Yeah. And, and so, but it's just funny because you don't think about that. And um, I will let Jody talk about her characters. <laughs> so. well, we'll get there because we do talk about the characters. But before we dig into the novel itself, we're going to take a moment and enjoy that glorious cover. So uh, what's the story of this? Did you have any say in the creation of the art or did they just sort of give it to you? And is the one that we found. Uh, the original cover, or is this what Wordfire Press put on? This, this is the cover. This is I own that painting. It is downstairs in my husband's office. Oh, that's and awesome! It's tremendous. Don Mates is my favorite cover artist, and he does incredible work. I've had at least seven books illustrated by him. He does he does wonderful work. Uh, when my first fantasy was coming out, Brian Thompson, who was my editor at the time, wonderful man. I miss him still. Uh, 
was in a panel and he said, we'll have lunch afterwards and I wanna discuss some things with you. And I've picked out an artist for your first book. I wanna show it to you. Well, we wandered through the art show waiting for Brian to come out and we stopped in front of Don's display. And I saw Don's painting 40 Thieves, which is a pirate ship uh, with the most disreputable characters on board that you can imagine. It's, it's a great painting. Don does great pirates. He did the Captain Morgan rum ad. So you can oh, probably- wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yes, he does the pirate. Right, so, so Brian came along and said, oh, you found it. This is the artist I thought of for your, uh, for your first book, Mythology 101. So thus begun, began a, uh, a lifelong love. He's, I think he's perfect for my sort of stuff. So uh, Steve wanted to use Don, and in fact, I think had already used him for something else, negotiated with him, worked it out. And this is, uh, these are the, the two officers fighting it out on, uh, on Wingle World, <laughs> which is a planet-sized amusement park. I got that theme and I, I'm, I'm digging the cover. So we're gonna move on to the book itself. So what would your 30 second elevator pitch for this novel be? Punishment detail is given what looks like a, a cream puff assignment and turns out to be anything but. And humor ensues. I will have to check out the audiobook and hope it's still there. <laughs> All right, Doc. Stop giggling. I, I can't. I giggle every time I go through this one. So um, I know what makes this this special, but can you tell us what makes this book stand out, particularly amongst military sci-fi? Well, the fact that it's funny, for one thing. Uh, and I talked to a lot of service people and, and retired service people to get what they thought was funny. And naturally, like anything else, I had to dampen it down a little bit because uh, for, for the general public. But there is, uh, there's quite a bit of, of unadulterated military humor in there. I, I know some, some people who had just great stories to tell and I incorporated what I, what I learned from them, what, what, uh, how, they, how they really live. Uh, everything, everything can be very, very boring and then until suddenly it isn't. <laughs> yes. And army buddies are like anyone else with whom you have experienced an adrenaline inducing uh, event. It's nobody else can understand it but you. There's a whole lot of you had to be there. You can tell the no shit there I was stories all you want, but it never has the same impact as it does for somebody with whom you actually lived it. That's very true. And the best of those kind of stories, generally, you have to be drunk to tell. So, and since we're all sober, we're going to let Doc ask the next question. Wait, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm assuming you're sober, Doc. What? Huh? We don't talk about that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I love this. This is a tropolicious question, which is what tropes do you feel like you really took and used? And which ones do you feel you kind of put on your side, their side? Say that again. Which tropes did you use in this book and which ones did you take and be like, I like this trope, but let's turn it around and do it 180. Oh, well, one of them absolutely has to be the officer coming into sort of an established environment and thinking that he has to shake it up only to find himself shaken up. 
<laughs> but in in reality, it, it, and also the the punishment detail turning out to be tremendously effective in their own wacky way. So I, I suppose that those are two fairly common tropes, but I I like them. I think they work just fine. Uh, I I know that I think sometimes the most interesting results are when the commander just says, go do, and then they're like, wait, I didn't think you'd actually do this, or how did you do this? Well, <laughs> uh, in this case, it's they've managed to make things happen before. So how do I care how you get there as long as you get there? They call that plausible deniability, folks. Exactly. <laughs> if I don't, if I didn't see it happen, it didn't happen. They even have a saying in that in rugby: if the sir didn't see it, it didn't happen. Jr. loves his rugby stories. It's about the only sport he actually understands. <laughs> uh, this is true. <laughs> so well, I understand NASCAR. You just drive in circles, right? That's I'm not really too, sure that that's a sport. I don't know. It's on the sports team. It is channel, competitive, so. but it is not athletic. Then again, they put poker on the sports. Anyway, I digress. Let's continue. Anyway, before we get people sending us hate mail, um, so what JR loves to have me ask this because he knows I hate subgenres, but what subgenres do you feel this fits into? This is humorous military science fiction. I mean, you, it's hard to get much more sub than that. It's futuristic. Uh, but it's it's military, but it's funny, and that is a very small subgroup. Fair. That all right, Doc? You did your you did your penance today. You can ask your fun questions. So can I have been asking some of the fun questions? So what? Um, tell us about the main character. We see him on the book cover, but can you tell us a bit okay. more about him? Well, Die Wolf is not even the oldest child in his family, but uh, his his father wants him to come back and join the family business. He does not want to be involved in the family business. He, despite the fact that they have a lot of legitimate businesses throughout the galaxy, he still doesn't like uh, the the origins of the family wealth and so on. He wants to do good across the galaxy, but discovers in fact, that he has to fall back on what his father and his grandfather and great-grandmother and, and the ancestors going all the way back developed in order to become, uh, to make his mission work and to be effective, he occasionally needs to fall back on what he did learn in the family. It, it isn't all bad because the family is loyal to itself and to the people that depend upon it. This is let's be honest, glorified mafiosi that um, they don't attack non-combatants and they, the word given is kept. So he's, uh, he's honorable. He's absolutely honorable. And he's rejecting the family business, uh, hoping to make his own way in the world, hoping, hoping that as, as a wolf, people think of him as himself and not as a member of his family. Although, and since you asked about him, his mother is, uh, is a famous TV host for very young children. So people, when they see her, they, they go back to being four years old again. And 
he admires her very much, but in her own way, she's just as tough as dad. So in so, his uh, prime, could the, the Niro... second book, the second book was going to be, well, is going to be, uh, it's going to include her in it. And I'm looking forward to that. So would De Niro fit if you, if they made this when he was younger in your, the film adaptation? Why would De Niro be in it? He did the Goodfellas, the iconic gangster movie. Uh huh. Actually, he doesn't look like Dad at all, so um, no, maybe not. All right, Doc. I'm trying <laughs> here. I don't have a lot of cultural references. I read too much and watched too little TV. Well, remember, well here's the thing. Not inevitably, not most of the Italian. best actors. Yes, but inevitably, most of the truly amazing sci-fi fantasy roles were done by not huge named froze, actors. Doc. You froze. I couldn't understand that. Uh, getting huge named actors, I think, kind of backfires when you're casting for a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. It depends. I think that Robert De Niro as fearless leader just delighted me no end. I'm not sure I've seen that one. He was in Rocky and Bullwinkle with the live action movie. I didn't watch that. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know uh, it just, movie. Now I know what I'm doing this weekend. It, the humor is right on your age level. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad you appreciate it. It's like you do I didn't know me. say that. Um, so can you tell us about some of the standout secondary characters that are in this book? Because you never uh, skimp on your characters. The two master sergeants who also happen to be lovers are great characters. And it has been long enough that I have gotten their names, except uh, Emmy, uh, who's also called Ammo, is tiny and tough. They're, they're all very tough. They've had a lot to put up with and they simply cannot be mustered out. There's no good excuse for it. The, you know, the punishment detail is supposed to be punishment enough. Yeah, they're, they're just bad enough that nobody wants them in their unit, but they're tremendously effective as non-com officers. And they've been keeping this, this group together long enough that they have become a very weird kind of family, like any other group that's been thrown together long enough. Maybe dysfunctional family, but family <laughs> nevertheless. I think I really, after I read this early on in my military career and then I read it afterwards and I really, it, it jived very strongly with me <laughs> because you do have those, that platoon or that squad and they're like, yeah, we really just, but they seem to have just embraced the moniker of being the punishment group and, and they go with it and they've, they've, they just do things and that they do really amazing things. And then you just really hope you never have to know how they did it. Don't want to know. Do not want to know. Yeah, I was famous for looking at people and going, well, you see, there's this phrase called don't ask, don't tell. And it applies to more than one topic. And they went, just, just shut up small. <laughs> and they just walk away. Right. Again, Let's see. deniability. Um, I also have someone who is a clone and she is, she is the latest in the line of someone who wanted immortality. Uh, and the, the gene line has been maintained, even though 
the, the personality doesn't go along with it. You know, you, you even if you have the same genes, you're not necessarily going to behave the same way. You're not going to have the same, you're not going to have the memories. Yeah. So I felt tremendously sorry for this character because she also, just like uh, Wolf was trying to make her own way in the universe. But one of my favorites is Jones, who's the engineer. He comes from a planet where everybody is named Jones. <laughs> it's, it's Joan's planet. And he is the one who is responsible for the dirtiest limericks in the book. He's funny. Were you inspired by George Foreman naming all of his kids George, even the girls? No, no, I, did, I no. was not. I, I think he's, I think George Foreman is, is a tremendously interesting guy. And if you have never seen Better Late Than Never, you should. I feel okay. bad for his daughters. I hope they had excellent middle names. But <laughs> at least they can afford the therapy, Doc. So uh, are there any bad guys for your that your characters have to confront without giving away any spoilers? Is there anything you could tell us about the bad guys? The bad guys want the same thing that the good guys do. They're just a lot more vicious about it, and they are not constrained by rules of engagement or uh, army rec uh, regulations. Space Marine regulations. So they they are they are out to get what they want, and I do not want to give things away because uh, it's it's part of part of the plot. So okay. they, I think they're they're nasty and vicious, and they ought to be someone that you dislike. Okay, so speaking of characters, if yours ever met you in a back alley, how do you think that would fare? Given the kind of hell authors put their characters through. Would you get a hug, a punch in the face, or something in between? I'd have to buy them all a drink. No question about that. <laughs> if I suddenly <laughs> recognized who I was face-to-face -face with, it's, let's go to the bar. <laughs> you can never go wrong with a good bar. Just well, don't tell my shrink I said that. And I would just have to, you know, pat my credit card and say, don't cry. Don't cry. It'll be over soon. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, finally, what can you tell us about the universe? So in many series, the worlds where the stories take place are as much a character as the antagonist or protagonist. So what, what can you tell us about this, this place the story is set? Well, the, the Thousandth Worlds Confederation uh, is humanity has grown out as far as it can. Uh, there are uh, there are alien races, but they've uh, most of the problems that they run into are with fellow humans, and they they are, are out to battle against the enemies of Earth and its uh, its colleagues. So, really, down down at the level where my space marines are uh, spacers, I call them, they. It's, it's above their pay grade, but there are television programs or the equivalent thereof. There's the internet. There are people falling in love. There are businesses. There are people exploring new planets, new worlds, uh, renovating fallen colonies and so on. So it's it's a busy place. And okay. there there are missions to be done, which is how my uh, my people end up doing their work. They, get, they so, get the things that are not supposed to have any glory attached to them. So as I said, it's above their pay grade. Excellent answer as a soldier. Just, they don't pay me enough to care. So 
Strong Arm Tactics is part of a series. You've mentioned that it says so in the title, and you mentioned that you intended it to be, and it will be at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so how long, how, how expansive is this series going to be? Are you going to be a trilogy and, and it's done? Are you going to try to compete with Weber for the most books in one single universe? Uh, how, <laughs> how do you see this going? Uh, I had plotted out four books. They they got all got shelved because of uh, the problem with the original publishing house. And all I ask is, uh, you know, that, that it carry on and, and look as good as the first one did. I mean, Steve, Steve did me proud the, to have a Don Mates cover, to have beautiful uh, production values. That's all I want for the, for the next one as well. And I, I, will, I will do what I can to make it a worthy story. The, the honor that I have been paid by a number of service people who have read it and said, I love this. This reminded me of blank person I was in a unit with, et cetera, is, is really a tribute. And if I ever have, if, if, if I get the opportunity to, to write another one, which I do intend to, I have a lot of people, a lot of new people to ask questions of and say, okay, tell me what happened uh, if ever something like this happened or what did your sergeant or your master sergeant or your chief do when this kind of thing happened in the unit? And that's, that is always uh, a fruitful conversation. Even if I don't use exactly their story, I get great ideas from what they do tell me. <laughs> so is the cover artist around to make the subsequent um, covers yeah. as well? Yes, he is. Yeah. Okay, because it's. I think it's he's sometimes only jarring years when... older than I am, so I I Perfect. wish him a very long career. He's wonderful. Sometimes when they switch artists midstream, it can be jarring because the look just isn't the same. So I know that cover is too perfect. Similar, who does similar work, but I like Don better. Well, I. It's a glorious cover. It is a glorious right. cover. I've, I I think I can identify which ones of her of. Her other covers he's done as well, just because I'm familiar with the mm -hmm. artwork. In the middle, you yeah. see the uh, mascot of Wingle World. Uh, that's Bunny Hug, who is a nine-foot uh, pink bunny. And it's, it, it is supposed to be a little cloying looking because it is for six-year-olds. And if you have ever been creeped out by Chucky the Cheat, Chucky whatever the thing is, cheese. cheese, you, you'll love what happens. <laughs> and I, I like, you know, I like the art. If you check out like the blasters in this hip uh, and the rifles they're using, that has that sort of 1950s sci-fi aesthetic to them mm -hmm. that I really like. So I love it. Oh yeah, it's 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 beautiful. I thought it turned out just amazingly well. I laughed myself sick when I first saw the art. That's amazing. <laughs> he, he's so. always like that. He always surprises me with tremendously detailed, wonderful work. So did this the picture continue for the wraparound? Because I grabbed the ebook copy and I didn't see it, the paper. No, this is all there is. Oh. This is okay. it. Okay. That's a glorious picture. All right, Doc, I, I could drool forever, but you got to save us from ourselves or it'll get boring okay. real quick. So I'm familiar with your work and I know that you always keep things very consistent internally within your science and mm -hmm. or magic when you're doing fantasy. 
So what sort of tech can you tell our readers to expect out of these books? What sort of tech? Yeah. Well, um, one of the most important things about anything that the military has to deal with is that the parts need to be interchangeable. Otherwise, they're, they're going to be useless because when something goes wrong, if you can't slot in another part, then you have lost that piece of equipment. And really, the simpler, the better. So something that can be recharged from main power. Uh, and the, the problem that most service people run into is the same one that, that people run into now is the food this was, uh, this was conceived at a time when I was talking to a friend who had gone to Desert Storm and he talked about being stuck with the worst MREs, which uh, in, in these books I call merds or merds as in the French word for, for excrement because some of them were, were really terrible and people traded hard to try and get the good tasting ones. It so happens that my friend who is an armorer who makes both uh, edged weapons and makes guns. He had a particular favorite, which was not uh, favored by the unit that he went in with. He, he was going in as a contractor at Desert Storm and he had great stories to tell about it. And that was the first time that I, I learned that MREs now come with tiny bottles of Tabasco sauce with them. And uh -huh. Tremendous trade goods. If, if you didn't like Tabasco sauce, you could probably trade for a candy bar or something else that somebody else was willing to give just to get some more flavor in their food. So uh, the, the whole MRE situation becomes important in strong arm tactics. And like I said, anything that's the simplest, the better, so that something doesn't go wrong with it. But something can always go wrong. <laughs> so... So, Doc, when you were in, did you have a, a favorite or least favorite MRE? Yes, I did. Uh, I would say that I I did. I like most of the vegetarians were pretty good as long as it wasn't the vegetarian omelet. Oh, they called it the vomlet. It was disgusting. No, it's but the other one. thing that was hilarious uh -oh. about it is um, the vegetarian omelet comes with hash browns. But the hash browns have bacon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's in a vegetarian MRE. I forgot that. You're right. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Um, I, I would say my favorite one was the, quote, tuna salad, which before anybody gags, understand, it. the reason it worked was because it was the one that had the least to do with the army. Because when you opened it up, it was sun-kissed tuna, and then it had all these other, like, like rich crackers and other things. None of it was made by the army. I like the, the army chili didn't mac. cook it. I like the chili mac. That was my favorite. So, so I right. know that people like the chicken a la king, uh, and they like the meatloaf. And then there were some that they just did not want to go anywhere near. I did not like yeah. the meatloaf. I liked the I did not chicken like the and dumplings. I don't think I ever got that. Chicken one. and dumplings, yeah. That that I think that was Kevin's favorite. The beef stew is pretty good, but yeah. um hard to mess up beef stew though, to be fair. Yes, but yet it can happen. Um, but I, I actually my my fellows in my unit discovered that the 
uh, a lot of the proteins didn't agree with my stomach. And so it was much better for everybody else if I had just stuck with the vegetarians. Okay. Fair. So I ate a lot of the vegetarian. The vegetarian lasagna was pretty good and the ravioli. We we bought a lot from the uh, the PXs when we were in Iraq so we could cook on our own and not have to live off the MREs because they were horrific to your body. Uh, and then we learned to cook on an engine block. <laughs> so I, I don't want to think about the probable future cancer I get from the things that were cooked on those engines. I just It's better not to think about it. Yeah, no. But uh, I always had lots of stuff to trade because I did not eat the Tabasco sauce. So I didn't particularly care for it. Which meant I always got had people willing to give me stuff for it. I I Some understand that the brownie it. was hot trade goods. Yes, the brownie was good. They used to do a chocolate um, protein bar that was actually really good. Yeah, I remember that. Um, some, somehow they messed up the combos though because they were like generic and like tasted like cardboard. That was, I don't know how they did that. I don't know because combos kind of taste like that. No, they don't. You bite your tongue. All right, Doc, we're going to get in arguments about food, so let's get back on track. None of which you can eat on your What's that? None of which you can eat on your diet anyways, JR. This is probably why I'm getting hangry, so we'll move on. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, of all the tech in your book, is there any you'd take and use for daily life now? Hmm... I would love to have the data card that Die Wolf carries on his chest <laughs> because it is a supercomputer that is even beyond what we're using now. So how would you abuse it for a day if you had it? It would become a permanent repository for files that I don't want to lose. Uh, mm. Things can happen even to solid state drives. Yeah. But this this is made to go through everything. I mean, he, he showers with it. <laughs> so she actually is the one who's abusing tech by doing good things. So she clearly doesn't fit in with, with you and Nick and I, because we were like, we'd get a lightsaber and cut people's feet off just for the fun of it. We, we had all kinds of horrific ideas. Oh. Uh, all right. So you asked, you told about, us- you'd ask about this book. Uh, I, I have other tech that I would I would maintain from other other books, but <laughs> talking about this one, I have no use for most of the things that uh, the the unit uses because not a military person. But there's some sure. really cool animatronic like things that they have in this book that are kind of cool. I enjoyed I enjoyed coming up with that, and. I have watched puppeteers because there are puppeteers on this planet run several uh, marionettes at a time. And I was just fascinated by the concept. So that, that kind of fed into it. I want to really read this. It is really great. Were you inspired by the tunnels that they have underneath Disney world for some of this? Uh, Yep. That that's part of it. I also knew that underneath several of the universities that I have toured and uh, attended, also the ones that my husband went to, had steam tunnels that you could get into if you knew how. Oh, wow. 
And uh, and Bill Bill knew all the ones under Western Illinois University. Uh, they they keep blocking them, but but people who who know how to get into them probably know access points that the current administration has no idea about. But I did know that there are many 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 tunnels underneath the Disney properties, so that the character people can escape into them, and that the security can pop up suddenly if they are needed. It's just amazingly quick access. So I thought this this could be a lot of fun. This this is running on more than one level, in literal and figurative sense. Yeah, uh, it, it shows that you did a bunch of research into how some of the amusement parks do their their thing. Mm -hmm. So, yep. And then, I was able to visit uh, the tunnels underneath an, an amusement park, not a Disney property, and it's just very cool there's there's also as you as you probably know one uh tunnels that run underneath the, the senate uh office buildings the uh government office buildings in washington yeah yeah there's the uh, original civil war fortifications they use for emergency escape or they did right. before helicopter technology got better yep but now they they still use the little rail cars so it's cool that's pretty cool all right doc you get to ask your favorite question uh, so there are a lot of my favorite questions and I get to ask all of them that I want to. I share with you when I deem, deem it right. Um, <laughs> so you said that we have aliens in this universe, but how did, have you, I can't, it's been a while since I read the book. I don't really remember them playing a huge part, but how do you go about designing your aliens when you do design an alien? Is it? Um, well, there's, there's the cat person. Uh, he's, you know, he would be much happier wearing like, uh, you know, kind of overalls. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to tell a story about people. And of course, all aliens are people. They just uh, are more interested in their own lives than in ours. And they're going to perceive things differently. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's fun to explore that. But mostly I was I was talking about the cohesiveness of group that had to be together because mm -hmm. they didn't have a choice. And it was either that uh, or go home or back to whatever life they had before that. And a lot of people become career military because they find a fulfillment. There, yes, a fulfillment that they don't find in their civilian life. And some of these people, like Jones, has been there. Uh, he he could probably retire. He could probably claim his twenty or his thirty, but he doesn't have any reason to go back. Whereas he he, despite the fact that it's the punishment detail, he feels useful there. He feels he feels comfortable. Okay, that's a good answer. So. <laughs> For for punishment detail, does that mean they also get like the literal shit burning details, or is it just the missions nobody wants? Missions nobody wants because literally they've they've been removed from their previous uh, postings, and that is that is supposed to be punishment enough. But they they're still given assignments. It's just usually the ones that are going to be difficult or dull or both. <laughs> Dull is a good thing. You don't appreciate that when you're young, but dull is a good thing. Right. 
All right. So clearly this interview is winding down, but was there anything about strong arm tactics that we didn't ask you that you wanted to tell us before we move on? Uh, I did my best to make all of the characters in the unit real people with their own backstory. Didn't get a chance to explore all of them. And of course, some of them didn't survive naturally. So I, I was hoping to go on with that to work out how Die Wolf is going to go on with his life, what, what he's going to do, because it's unlikely he will remain in the military forever because they, the brass simply will not promote him into a position where he is in charge of large units, even if he has the ability, because he is a political hot potato and they cannot afford to get him killed. He's <laughs> probably likely going to get postings where he can show uh, what he's made of. It's so I'll have to I'll have to work out what I, where I'm going to go with that. Okay, so normally when rights transfers become an issue, like what you're talking about, when publishers fold or or whatever, the audiobook rights eventually expire as well. So is the audiobook for this still out there? The audiobook um, ought to be out there because Audible made a large buy some years ago, and I believe that's one of the ones that they bought. So okay. uh, I would have to check, but I think that was one of the ones that was purchased. Otherwise, JR is going to have to have his mom read it to him. Hey, I can read sometimes. I just like it when they, they do the voices. I know. That's why you're going to have your mom do it, because I won't do it. I bet if I paid you enough, you'd read too. All right. So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where we remind you that uh, as readers, um, your thoughts matter. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And rumor has it when an author gets 100 reviews, they get a unicorn. Uh, and like I say, every time I, for one, would like to know what a unicorn steak tastes like. So, Doc, are you putting uh, a, a one on your steak? Or are you going to put the um, ketchup on your unicorn steak? How, how are you going to cook yours? I didn't know that it had to be a dead unicorn. Can it be a live one? I mean, come on. You get an exotic animal, you're not going to see what it tastes like a steak? I ate camel for crying out loud. That's not an exotic animal. It is when you're from the burbs. <laughs> All right. She's looking at us weird, Doc, so we'll have to move on. So, Jody, can you uh, tell listeners how they can find you? Well, um, my, my website is currently being renovated, so um, you can look for me on Facebook. I have a an Amazon page. Uh, I've, I've, start, I've just started up an Instagram page, so I have to post pictures of my cats. And... <laughs> As you do. Freezing cats. As you do. That's right. My beautiful kitties. So, uh, and and find me at, at various conventions. What, so now we got to get her like spectacles for the cats so they can sit there reading books and like, you know, just to, to pose them more properly. What, Doc? Okay. Don't judge me. Cats, cats, absorb, cats absorb information in different ways. Um, I had a cat who would sit on almost any kind of communication form, including the answering machine, which she could uh, activate with her butt. <laughs> oh my! Oh my! Yeah. All right. We could we could so, hear it erupt from the from the other room and start reading off messages, and that meant that Cassie was sitting on it. <laughs> 
All right. And dear listener, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Uh, SF underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We promise we read and answer them. You can send all hate mail to Seska at blasters and blades podcast.com. You can join us on our website, which is anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. You can also support us there on a reoccurring basis, much like a Patreon model. You can also support the show um, by participating in, I almost forgot, the uh, the Facebook group, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast, where all the shenanigans happen. Uh, and we try to cure Seska of her perversions of putting pineapples on pizza. Das ist verboten. Um, you can also support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. And be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. I promise I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never surrender. Except for Nick. He just passes out. Yeah, but, you know. Oh, and uh, we've been meaning to tell you, we didn't mention it at the end of season one episode, but we are looking into the process of getting an actual proper grown-up looking website but for now anchor.fm the the link there is free and it, it links to everything else but we are we are looking at the feasibility of an actual proper website uh apparently doc knows people who know people so we're, we're gonna try to make that happen i know people yes i do and then i know you <laughs> why do i feel like i was just insulted good you're learning i'm sorry <laughs> Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber, J.R. Handley, I'm Seska. This was a Blasters and Blaze podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place, same chaos. <laughs> love it, indulging our love. Nerd culture, cheesy jokes, all things that go boom, pineapple on pizza, and of course, making J.R. cry. I never cry. <laughs> I just yes, cut onions. All the time. Allergy season. All right, Anytime you see pineapple on pizza. Because that's heresy. That's